Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the smartest of podcasts, Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. Thanks for joining us again. Today, we are going to lead you in a conversation on how to lead. See what I just did there, Roach? I do not. I used, go on. I used to lead twice. Was, oh, gotcha. I'm, I'm a leader. Um, today, we speak with Drew Dudley. And Drew Dudley is the man, and he's Canadian, so you know he's the man. Um, he's a speaker, entrepreneur, fundraiser, all types of stuff. He's, he's really, he doesn't like to say motivational speaker. So we're going to say, I referred to him as a leadership consultant, perhaps he has a company, uh, nuanceleadership.ca. And so companies pay him to come in and basically talk to him about being a leader, creating leaders, things like that. And his definition of leadership is interesting. It's a little different, but we'll get into that. What else you got on Drew there, John? Well, you've covered pretty much everything, but he's got a bunch of videos out on his website and in other places. He's been on TED.com. He's done multiple TEDx talks, um, and those are the smaller organized event TED talks, not the the major ones. But he's got one of his videos on the TED.com front page, which is pretty impressive. It's got you know thousands of views on there. So he's spoken at multiple corporations, different universities, schools, high schools, you name it, he's done it. Yeah, and the other thing is, and we'll talk about this, but he talks about adding value. And I think that's really cool. The topic of adding value to the world. 
and he's added value in numerous ways to people's lives. He's, you know, really been involved in a lot of things. One of them being fundraising. I know he's raised over three million dollars as the founder or chair of a bunch of different organizations. So we were really happy to have Drew on and kind of dive into this whole thing. I mean, it, the conversation goes numerous ways, but don't follow the social norms and make your own path. Don't play these games. Don't buy into a lot of things and really lead through being productive by being valuable. Yeah. Don't follow anybody else's lists except for yourselves. I like that. That was, yeah, the that was the thing. main point that I took away and I thought it was pure genius. In one of his talks, he goes through the list is basically a timeline. And if you can draw out your timeline and then every time you deviate from it, that, that actually makes you feel bad. And that is literally depressing. You're like, well, I, I know what I'm going to be doing. And and it's just really cool when you kind of take that away. And I know we've talked about it before. We've touched on it. But it's always good to talk to somebody with some fresh ideas who does this for a living. And I personally feel like this interview, not to take anything away from all of it as a whole, but it has so many one-liners that I want to like put in quotation marks and stick on a mirror or something. He did a great job at leaving us with those little quotes that, like you said, we could just throw up on our cubicle or our cage, like he liked to call it, yeah. which I couldn't agree with anymore. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this interview. And I also hope that you head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, click on the Amazon banner, support the show through buying stuff through Amazon. So without further ado, we will um, lead you into the conversation. I did it again. Oh, God. <laughs> With Drew Dudley. Enjoy. So I guess we'll just start it off. Uh, I was hoping to first learn a little bit more about what you do. You know, I've watched many of your videos. John has as well read up on you, but obviously some people might not know. So wanted to talk about what you do. And then um, after that, I guess we'll get into how you got there. Sure. You know, what I do is changing every day. I guess the best way of describing what I do is, is uh, I just get to do what I love. I, uh, accidentally stumbled into uh, the fact that apparently I could say things that people felt were worth listening to. And I always, I often joke that I was 27 years old before I discovered the thing that I was born to do. Because when I was, you know, like I think I was 16 years old, I went on stage to do something or other in high school and totally froze up. Like just the most mortifying freeze up of all time. And I don't think... I went and did something formal on stage for quite a while after that. And eventually I was asked to come back and, and do something when I was a professional fundraiser for uh, my old university. They asked me to come out and talk about a few projects I started back at the university. And I said yes, because I was into a girl, like all of the things that, that changed so many men's lives. It was a woman. Oh. And uh, I, was, I was totally crazy about this girl at my old school uh, who was still out there. And so I decided when they called and said, hey, would you like to come and talk about some of the leadership ideas that came out of, I worked a lot with fundraisers. I did some things for the Canadian Cancer Society. We lost a friend of ours to cancer and we started a project for him. We lost a roommate to a car accident. We started a scholarship fund for her. Uh, for years, I, at that point, I'd been involved with a charity here in Canada called uh, uh, Shinerama, Students Fighting Cystic Fibrosis. And they asked me if I'd come back and talk about the initiatives we'd started as fundraisers. And honestly, all I could think of was sweet. You know, I can go to dinner with this girl. So I said, yeah, of course, you know, free flight. Who'd say no to that? 
And as soon as I hung up the phone, I thought, oh, my God, uh, I actually have to give a speech. You have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Um, you should have thought this through. And, you know, I ended up going out there and, and talking about a few ideas that popped into my head as a result of, of listening to the music of some of my friends. Because the musical project we created in honor of our friend Jason uh, was a compilation CD of, of university music. And so I started talking about how some of the lyrics connected me to ideas about leadership. And uh, I was so nervous and so terrified. And I stepped out on the stage and it was like being hit by lightning. And I said, I have to do this for the, for the rest of my life. It's amazing. And a friend of mine ran backstage afterwards and got this, this really long standing ovation. And a friend of mine ran back after, backwards and said, uh, hey, I didn't know you could do that. And I said, neither did I, but I need to do it consistently from now on. And he said, I just have one tip for you. And I said, what, anything? And he said, you're going to want to make it shorter. And I said, well, I, I, got, I had like an hour and 15 minutes. How long did I talk? And he says, two hours and 41 minutes. What? (laughs) (laughs) And he goes, nobody left. Nobody went to the bathroom, my friend. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen, but never do it again. (laughs) And and that was it. It was just a a realization that I love doing this. And apparently some of these ideas, uh, most of what I talked about were, were things that I'd screwed up, ideas that I wish I had known as opposed to, here's what got me here. It was more like, here's all the things I tripped over on the way here. And if I had a chance to walk through this minefield again, here's where I wouldn't step. And it seemed to resonate with people. So uh, that made me realize I wanted to move from professional fundraising at the university into uh, leadership development. And I I started to build the program at the University of Toronto, uh, Scarborough. And that got larger and larger. And eventually on the side, I kept doing this, this presentation, these workshops, this facilitating and I got to develop new ones through uh, running the program at the university, along with working with these really extraordinary people. And the next thing I knew, I was you know, making more money and, and having more fun on the weekends than I was at, at, at work. And so eventually it just became, let's do this. Let's, let's take the plunge. And I was so poor when I left. You know, I, I hadn't saved up any money really. And, and uh, I moved out back out to the east coast of Canada, where I, which I, you know, I was in love with. And, you know, had no money at all. And, and I remember because I was doing presentations, but universities pay you like six weeks later. So for, for one week of every month, for the first two months, uh, someone had to buy me food. And, and I, I, when I ended up going to speak at TEDx Toronto, which eventually became the talk that ended up on TED.com, my shoes are stapled together during that presentation. Like I, I was having the time of my life. I had no money. I had no idea if it was going to work out, but I never felt more free, never felt happier. And I'm up there with these stapled together shoes and I gave that talk and so many people had a chance to see it. And the next thing you know, it became a reality that I get to do this for a living. I get to talk with individuals and organizations, schools, colleges, universities, high school students to come in and and talk about redefining leadership. I think leadership development is, is important. But I think the first concept we have to work on is that the reason that most of us start at, you know, a step beat back, we are, well, we have to develop into leaders. The reason we say that is because our definition of leadership says that we're not a leader right now. And so much of the work I do with Nuance, first it was just me. And now what we've done is we created a, a roster of, of speakers and facilitators who can help organizations 
sort of foster that idea amongst their, whether it's their students, whether it's their employees, their upper management, that the most successful organizations are going to be the ones who create what Robin Sharma calls leaders without a title at every level. And the number one way to do that is to make people realize that they really don't have that far to go to be a leader. In many cases, they don't have to go anywhere. They simply have to uh, realize they're already there. The idea that you know, leadership isn't about getting better. It's about realizing there's nothing wrong with you and changing the way you think and how you perceive yourself uh, so that you remind yourself of that more often. That's really where leadership starts. And, and what I do, I mean, this is a long answer. I'm so sorry. No, no. It's... Really what I do is I try to create through my own work and through the work of other brilliant people I've met is I try to help connect people with others who can make open their minds to ideas of leadership they might not have considered before because we have such a narrow focus on it. If we can create more ideas of what leadership means, it's more likely that one of those ideas is going to connect with an individual and make them embrace the idea that they are actually a leader. Well, actually, that's, that's good that we kind of transitioned into the topic of leadership because without really thinking about it on a, on a day-to-day basis, leadership is something that I think we take as this, this abstract idea or, or, or just not even abstract, it's just a you don't dive into the subject too much, right? Like a leader is the general on the battlefield or, you know, the CEO of the company or something like that. And you have a little bit different take, which is when you, when you think about it is, is really enlightening. Could you kind of talk about what you think a leader is and how they come about, I guess? Sure. I think that over a long period of time, obviously you can't do this job and not have somebody say, what is leadership? And that's tough because it's a constantly evolving concept. And right there, you know, things differ from the way people traditionally think of it because it is positional. And it often has been positional. It often has been where it fits in a management or bureaucratic structure. I think that leadership is striving to act every day in a way that makes it more likely you'll have a positive impact on your own life and on the lives of other people. And I say striving to act every day because we will fail sometimes. Uh, Even with the best of intentions, sometimes what we try to do won't work out. But I think if you strive to act every day in a certain way, more days than not, you'll succeed. And I say makes it more likely you'll have a positive impact on your own life and on the lives of others because there are times that even when you do everything right, it doesn't work out. So for me, that's the definition of leadership is if you aspire to be better, you inspire the people around you to do the same. That's a very broad definition. And, you know, I've actually sat in meetings with, you know, senior academics who say, well, Drew, if you define leadership that way, uh, everyone could be a leader. And, and anyone who, who's responsible for knowledge generation is a leader. And they say it in such a dismissive tone as if it's ridiculous. I don't get why that's a ridiculous concept, that everybody can be a leader. I think that we all are, because I think that as long as we see leadership as these positional things, we're saying very few people can do it. And that's not unlike any number of things in our society. For whatever reason, we have agreed to live by rules and by definitions that say a very small number of people are valuable. And that boggles my mind. The whole education system does it. You know, we start ranking and grading people because, well, why would we do that if it wasn't to give people at the top something people at the bottom didn't get? So as Ken Robinson will say in his phenomenal TED Talk, you know, we're rewarding one type of intelligence in education. And only people who can write tests and essays well 
are seen as valuable in the education system, but they're a relative minority. And yet everyone in the system, kids from every age and the teachers too, seem to accept that, okay, that makes sense. We look at a world where, let's say we strip away jobs and money. And, and I know that's a, a crazy idea, but let's say that hypothetically we strip away money and jobs, that you couldn't use those to evaluate people. If that was your reality, who would you look up to? And those people are leaders. And that's it. Like, who lives a life in a way that you would look up to if money and jobs were not part of the equation? And my argument is, is that those people influence us so positively every day. But for whatever reason, we agree to live by these rules that say, well, they're not as valuable as people who are tall, who are good looking, who make a lot of money, who are straight, who are white, who, well, any number of things. We've agreed to these rules that say this small number of people are valuable. How on earth the majority has agreed to, to a set of rules that say the, they're not valuable uh, boggles me. So for me, leadership is, is recognizing that every single individual, whenever they make something positive happen for their own life, for the lives of other people, and when I say their own life, I mean in a way that isn't self-centered, but they take steps to, uh, to live the best life that they can. I think that that's leadership, and I, and I realize that it's not positional and it's not traditional, but positional and traditional has gotten us into a place where very few people are seen as valuable, not only by society, but by, they seen, by, by themselves. To me, that makes no sense. And as long as it makes no sense, I think we should change things. Lily, Lily Tallman, I remember, said, uh, I don't remember it, but I remember reading it, said that I always wondered why somebody didn't do something about that. And then I realized that I'm somebody. And for me, I took a look around and said, look, traditional led to so many people feeling like they're nothing. So many people feeling like they don't matter. And so many people treating each other like they can be stratified based on these, on, on these ridiculously arbitrary measurements. Well, that makes no sense. So what's a better solution? Because I don't think you can just whine about something without thinking of a better solution. And I thought, well, look at these people I look up to. And if you stripped away money and jobs, I'd want to live like them. The only reason I, I don't say, oh, I wish I was them right now is because, well, they don't have all that much money. You know, there was a, a, a janitor at my high school named Mr. Kiff, and he was this remarkable man. And he'd smile at everybody and he knew everybody's name and he knew which kids were being bullied and he'd, he'd be friends with them. And when people would lose a family member, he'd anonymously leave these cards at their locker. And I, I just remember thinking, this is such a remarkable guy. And I went back and I was there because I'm speaking there at my old high school in a week or so. And I went back and, and I saw him and he gives me this big hug and he, and he says, Drew. And I said, man, I can't believe you remember me. And but I said, you know, you, you, you always, I think of you so fondly all the time. You really are an amazing man. And he said, oh, I'm just a janitor, man, who, who knew you guys before you made it to the big time. And I thought, man, just a janitor. If I could strip away money and jobs, I'd want to be like Mr. Kiff because when he's got all these amazing people he, he's been friends with over the years, these students who've gone on to all the things that we value in society, doctors and lawyers and architects and CEOs and and when his name gets mentioned, if his name was mentioned in one of their offices, 20 years after the Layla saw him, he, they, people would smile. And I think that's a great measurement of leadership is how many people 
would smile if your name was mentioned in a room you're not even in 20 years after somebody met you. And that man, that's what he has. And I don't see how that's not a leader. And the only reason that I don't say, wow, that's, that's the life I want, is because somewhere along the way we said, well, what he does for a living isn't as valuable as what I do. So what I did is I said, the traditional definition of leader doesn't work for me. It excludes too many people. It makes too many people feel like they're less than they are. And there are too many things in our society that lead people to feel like they're less than they are. And I don't understand why somebody doesn't do something about it. All I know is that I'm somebody who wants to do at least my part about it. Absolutely. And what kind of response do you get when you go and you speak at these schools, whether it be, you know, middle school, high school, college, university level? Are you surprised by the response and reaction that you get after people hear you talk? I guess what is the thing that kind of blows you away after you give these talks and then talk to these students? Wow, that's a great question. The whole idea that we get to do it or that I get to do it blows me away, to be honest. And the fact that so many people are eager to hear it. And I don't mean before I say it, but afterwards, it seemed like they were eager to hear it all along, but might not have have realized it. I guess the biggest thing that blew me away is this. I, when I started to speak, I figured that the most powerful thing that you could get an audience to say to themselves was, wow, I didn't know that. And I, I realize now that the most powerful thing you can get an audience to think to themselves is, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. And I didn't realize how powerful this idea that we are being taught lessons. They're never explicitly taught, but they are learned in our education system that says, you know, this is what's valuable and the rest of you aren't. And there's a tremendous impact on how people feel about themselves as as a result. And there's a very small number of people who will put up their hand when I say, how many of you are comfortable calling yourself a leader? And it amazes me how big a difference there is from beginning of presentation to end on the number of people who are willing to put up their hand just because somebody said it was okay to think what they already thought. I am not telling anybody stuff that most of them don't already think. What I'm telling them, I think, is I'm giving, I hope, I'm letting people hear somebody else with a microphone who's lived within schools and who you know, has been some modicum of what is traditionally considered successful, they're, they're getting to hear somebody else say what they always thought. And that's what blows me away is how many people actually already think this. And for whatever reason, have sort of pushed it off to the side and thought, well, that makes me kind of crazy. And, and how, how rude they respond when they're like, oh my gosh, somebody else thinks it too. And, and my question that still baffles me, to be completely honest, is if this many people think it, why is nothing changing? And that's something that what I love about my job is exploring with people, one, why that is, and two, what we can do to change that. So do you think that, you know, oftentimes you'll speak with, like you said, high schoolers, college students, things like that. And at that point, people haven't necessarily been out in the real world, been exposed to a lot of, I don't want to say difficulties because everyone has, but just real world experience per se. Do you think that by saying, you know, everybody, you're a leader is a little too feel good almost, you know, like maybe they aren't a leader. Maybe they, and I'm just asking to hear, you know, to see the other side of it. Maybe they don't live their life in this way that is so um, giving or motivational or things like that. Do you, do you at all say, you know, you have to work hard for this to be true to you? Yeah, 
no, and, and it's a really valid point. Like, I want to be very clear. I am not all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. <laughs> I mean, people say, you know, call me a motivational speaker, and I wince, uh, probably for two reasons. One, I grew up in the generation of Matt Foley and Chris Farley playing Matt Foley, right? So yep, the right. whole idea of motivational speaker, van down by the river, God help me if I'm ever that, right? <laughs> uh, the second is this. I find that motivational speakers, they go after the emotions first. Like, they're, they're what they're sort of focusing on is how people feel. And I think that's phenomenal. But what I try to, to get is to get is how people think. And I hope that I appeal to people's minds first. And then what we get them thinking affects how they feel. But there's a, an extra step in there. You want to go through the brain first down into the emotions as opposed to just appeal to the emotions. So I'm not all sunshine, lollipops and rainbows. I hope people feel good and recognize. But I also want to, you know, I do acknowledge this is a real world out there. And you can't just go around and think that as long as I try to make little lollipop moments happen, my life will be okay. Although I will tell you that the more you focus on it, the more likely your life is going to be okay. But I did have a student come up to me, and, and business students, man, are like a, man, they're a, they're a special breed, business students. <laughs> and uh, I, I spoke once, and, and he came up to me at the end of it, and he said, Drew, I've seen you speak three times. And I said, oh, great. And he said, I really like some of your stories. And I said, wonderful. And then he threw a complete curveball and he said, do you want to know what's wrong with you? And I mean, who wants to turn down the chance to hear a complete stranger tell you what's wrong with you, right? So, yeah. And so I said, fire away, man. And he goes, you never tell anybody how to win. And I wasn't sure what he meant. So he said, look, this is a competition. Like, this is a game. And we all know it. Man, we've known it from the first time we were graded. Like, we're getting ranked. Why else would we be? And he said, this is a game and there's only so much money and there's only so many jobs. And if I don't get it, somebody else will. So you're not doing anybody a favor by telling them that the little things matter. You're not doing anybody a favor by telling them that it's who they are and not what they do that matters. All you're doing, Matt, is making sure that they get run over in the game. And so stop telling people something that's going to get them hurt and tell them how to win the game. And, I mean, that was kind of a shot, right? And uh, so I thought about it because the last thing I want to do is, is hurt people. But I, I honestly think that he's right in that I never told anyone how to win that game. But I think that's because I think the only way to win that game is not to play it. And I talk about what I call the, an economy of scarcity. And I think that looking at the world as if it's a game it leads us to believe that it is a world of scarcity. There's only so much. But if we look at it as being an economy of abundance, and what, I think what you're asking, and it's a really valid question, is that, look, people do have to live, and they do have to get jobs, and they do have to work hard, and I don't deny any of that. But my point is that what we do is we say that working hard means that you make a certain amount of money or you get a, a certain job. And what I've discovered is that money and titles make lousy goals because you're not in charge of any of them. And this is what I want to tell students. I don't just say, you know, do nice things. But my point is that what I want them to do is reshift what it is they're chasing, because I think if they reshift their goals, or if they shift their goals, the, what they're going to do is, is it, the pursuit of their goals will become much more productive, financially and emotionally and psychologically and intellectually. Money and jobs and, and titles are lousy goals because ultimately you're not in charge of any of them, right? As long as you work for somebody else, how much money you make, is going to be somebody else's decision. Like how hard you work and how well you work is going to play a role in how much money you make. But if you think about it, ultimately how much money you make is somebody else's call. 
And whether you're promoted or you're given more responsibility, that is because someone else is in a position to decide that for you. And I think that as long as we tie our life goals to somebody else's whims, it's tremendously disempowering. Like I went and I realized when I worked for somebody else that what I was doing was go, going to work every day to try to please somebody that I worked for so that they could give me my life goals, money and titles. Like somebody else had to give me my life goals. Right. And what I realize now is that we will never feel like leaders in our lives when we feel like everything that we really want has to come from somebody else. So my point that I tell, I'm trying to tell individuals is that I'm not trying to tell you a different way of living than getting a job, working incredibly hard, and trying to do well. I'm saying make your goal in life to add tremendous value. This idea that leadership is adding value, if you add value in every interpersonal interaction, you're going to make more money. You're going to get better jobs. And the thing is, adding value, the ability to, of giving something, somebody something they, they didn't even know they needed or something they didn't even know they wanted every time you interact with them, if you do that, Everyone can do it, not just people who can write essays well, not people who can write tests well, not people who, just people who went to Ivy League schools. Everybody can add value in interpersonal interactions. My point is that when you do that, when you make that one goal to add value as opposed to money and jobs, if you treat adding value as your goal, which everyone can do, which isn't the case with graduating Harvard, right? Not everyone can do that, but everyone can add value. So let's make that the goal and let's treat money and jobs as the natural byproducts that will come from adding value. So work hard, do as well as you can, and I'm not saying that in a soft way, but do as well as you possibly can as you get ready for the world and work at jobs, but don't make money the, t the goal, make adding value the goal. If you're great at that, money and jobs will be the natural byproduct that come from adding value. And as a result, when I talk to students, my point is this. You should work incredibly hard to make your grades extraordinary. Like report cards and transcripts, like this, students are obsessed with these things. They've been obsessed with them since they were little. Like what I try to tell them is that you should work incredibly hard to make your grades extraordinary. But the part that I wish was in 10-foot letters on the wall of every school is I wish it would say, work incredibly hard to make your grades extraordinary and then work twice as hard to make them the least impressive thing about you. And if you do that, I think that leadership and success will follow you all the days of your life. And so I don't tell people that it's all light and fluffy and that just be nice and it will all work out. Being nice, isn't, it's a responsive thing. Adding value in work, in play, in relationships, being conscious about that and figuring out the skills and the education necessarily to, to add the most value in whatever way you can, that is hard work. And that is what education is about. So right. that's what I tell people, because I think if you add value, what I am telling them is that that's still how to make money and that's still how to get great jobs. And most importantly, that's still how to be happy. Right. See, and I really I like that description. I like the, the way you went about it, even starting talking about the game, because I think, you know, even in my life, I started off in my professional career, started off thinking, OK, it was a game. Right. Let's go the route of just try and make as much money, blah, 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 blah. And then struggled with that. And people said, that's not what it is. You know, do what you want to do. Like life is good. And so then I went the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And I was like, fine, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to sleep in and life's going to be great. And then I realized, okay, I'm on the right mental track, but now I'm not putting in the effort. And I think it finally took the realization that it's both. It's like, like you said, don't play into others game, like really know yourself, which God, how cliche is that? 
and then work hard as hell towards what you want to be, not what other people tell you or things like that. So it's kind of, maybe it is a game, but it's your own game, you know, that you made up. And yeah, and the rules are different. And I think the big one is, is that that's what I think some people think when you say, oh, well, you know, don't play the game. Uh, You know, don't, I've often said the only difference between a, a cubicle and a cage is that, you know, a cubicle doesn't have a roof and a door that locks. And most of the reason is because you haven't shown the company that you, that you deserve it yet. Like the idea that the only real difference between an office and a zoo is that in a zoo, they'd never let the animals out at the end of the night, expect them to feed themselves and come back the next day. So, you know, I don't go around saying, Oh, just like screw off, do whatever the heck you want and, and sleep in all day and, and play freaking Xbox and, or go live in a mountain. Like, okay, because you know what? That doesn't add a lot of value. That's the big difference between saying, you know, don't play the game. Well, if you're not going to play the game, what I'm saying is that um, the way to win the game is not to play by someone else's rules, but in fact to change what your goals are, which is become someone who wants to add tremendous value. Now, if you just screw off and play Xbox all day, you might be adding value to your own life, but you're not adding a whole lot of value to the world. So my idea is let's identify what it is that you can add the most value at. And what I found the education system does is it keeps telling people, if you just work hard enough, it will all pay off in the end, right? But we don't tell them how hard is hard enough, and we don't help them with what they want the payoff in their life to be. We don't tell them when the end will come. We just say, keep working hard, and it'll all pay off in the end. And they believe that the payoff is, you know, a job. That's the ultimate thing. Now, the problem is that school grades you on a certain type of intelligence again, and it tells certain people that what you are good at isn't really a gift. You know, it it says the role of education is to figure out what the market values so you can learn it and then offer it back to the market. And we don't care whether or not it's something that you are good at, something that you love, something that you're passionate about, or something you're gifted at. And what I like to say is the worst thing of all is that it tells people who are musicians and who are artists and entrepreneurs and change agents. It tells everybody whose brilliance cannot be measured on essays and on tests. It says to them, well, you know what? Your gifts aren't gifts at all. You see, they're only gifts if one day they can be monetized. Otherwise, they should just be hobbies. And many of the people in our education system, the students that I work with, the greatest value they can add to the world is through some sort of activity that isn't what's marked in elementary and high school, whether you know, music is the first thing cut, drama is the first thing cut. What are you going to do with those things? That question, what are you going to do with that? Like, it just makes me want to tear my hair out. Like, what are you going to do with a philosophy degree? I don't know. Be happy. You know, if philosophy is the way that you enter the world, if philosophy is the way that you're going to be able to change and impact the most people, that's adding value. And if philosophy is the avenue that gives you the way to add the most value, my argument is that you should try to do that as much as you can. Now, you may not get paid for that your whole life, but as Seth Godin said, your art is anything that you put into the world that changes people. And even if it's not what you get paid for, make sure you keep sending it out into the world because one day someone will pay you for it. And that's what I did. And I honestly think that's true. The problem is so many people give up on what they're passionate about, what they're gifted at, because early on in life they're told, well, you won't make much money at that. And 
so they shove themselves into these places where they're extremely unhappy. And an unhappy life is never a successful life. Leadership to me, you can't lead other people till you lead yourself, right? And I think lead the, a big part of leadership is saying, asking yourself honestly, you know, in what part of my life am I settling? Am I settling for in my relationships? Am I settling in my job? Am I settling in my health? Whatever it is. And then not being willing to settle. I don't try to tell people to not, to not strive to achieve everything they can. I'm just saying to make sure that whatever list they're trying to fill out of the things they need that they think their life has to be to be a success. I'm just saying, please make sure that you wrote the list. Because if you spend your life chasing a list of other people's goals, you're always going to feel unfulfilled. And leadership to me, before we can start running companies and, and leading troops in the battle, which is a form of leadership, I mean, before we can do any of those things, I think we have to be willing to lead ourselves in a direction that will allow us to, to give the most to the world. And I'm not doing that in a, a cheesy, you know, charity way. I just mean we are wh how, what value we add. And value isn't just profit. Profit is only one type of value. Right. But along the way, we teach people that it's all about profit. And I want to try to let people know that the key to getting the most profit, financial or otherwise, is adding the most value. And people right now are told that sacrificing whatever they're best at in order to do whatever they think is going to make the most money is how they chase value. And that's not the right path. Yeah. And this is one of the themes that we have on our podcast where a lot of the guests that we have on here have chased after their dream and their passion and started working around that. But one of the questions that we don't really ask that often is, what advice would you have for our listeners who want to take you know that similar road that you have where you've chased after your passion and you've created work around it? What advice would you have for them to just going ahead and taking that plunge and doing it? <laughs> Well, <laughs> I think you hit it right there, you know, the, the whole idea of do it. I guess my advice, uh, first of all, don't take, don't take advice from people who are really eager to give it, um, I guess is a cool way of doing it. Um, I guess a couple of things. One, you're not going to starve to death. I think that is, is something that I realized that you have people who care about you. And if you have people who care about you, do not be afraid to try it. If you're alone, if you're truly alone, you know, you need a support system to go out and take a shot at things. Because as long as you have a support system, as long as you have friends, as long as you have family who care about you, you will not starve to death. You can't do it. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to be homeless. I knew that I wasn't going to starve. I, I, I realized that the only thing keeping me from going after what I wanted to see if I could Make a living doing what I love. And I think if you're good at something and you love it, you owe it to yourself at least once in your life to see if you can do it full time. I realized the only thing that was keeping me from doing it was not a real fear that I was going to, to starve. I was not a fear I was going to become homeless, which are really the only real threats physically, right? Yep. I realized the only thing keeping me from doing it was a feeling that I might end up looking in the mirror in six months and saying, I expected more from you by now. The only thing that I was afraid of is me looking at myself and saying, I expected more from you. That's all there was. And I had to realize that I, that means that I was the only thing that could hurt me. And I realized that if I looked at myself in six months and I was still doing a job that made me miserable, 
then really would that not be the reason to look and say, I expected more from you? I don't know the secret to happiness, guys, but I swear to God, the secret to sadness is when there is a gap between the person you envision yourself to be and the way you're actually behaving. And I never saw myself as somebody who would accept less. I never saw myself as somebody who would settle. And I knew that if I looked in the mirror in six months in a job I hated, I would say to myself, I expected more from you. And I realized the only reason I wasn't taking the plunge was because that was, that was the only thing that could hurt me. Because I, as long as you've got a support system, you're not going to starve and you're not going to be homeless. All that you might end up is feeling like you're not where you're supposed to be. And if you can make yourself okay with that, then go for it. And you realize that you're going to feel just as bad if you don't go for what you care about. The other one is this, is that I think in every piece of success, there are five steps. And right now, I know I feel terrifyingly like a, a motivational speaker with the five <laughs> steps. So bear in mind that that's not what I'm trying to do. But somebody asked me in an interview the other day, like, what are the five steps that you think you, you, know, would, tell, you would tell people to take? And I, I had given such a bad interview that I was desperate to come up with something even remotely useful, right? Hey, it's too and, uh, <laughs> and so I said, uh, five steps. And, and I, this is what I tell people too. The five steps of everything I've ever cared about went like this. The first step, which is the tough one, you, like to, to, to start down the path when you don't know where it's going to go. So step one, the most important step is, is everything that you ever care about is going to go through this process. Step one, starting so hard. Aaron Sorkin, who's one of my heroes, says, I love to write, but I hate to start because there's nothing scarier than a blank sheet of paper. Yeah. So step one. The, then there's the second step, which is also terrifying because you want to go back because now you're out there. And the second step is the one that you take when there's no going back, right? You feel like you're cut off and this is it. Then there's the wrong step, which is the one that goes down the wrong path. And that's the one where you recognize that, wow, this isn't the way to go. And then there's the step backwards. And it's hard to take that step because we equate change with failure. And we think that adjusting is failure. And it's with this political crap where we say somebody flip-flopped. Well, somebody, times people change their opinion so they can get elected. That's one thing. Sometimes people change their opinion because they learned more. And this idea that we treat people who adjust midstream or who do one thing and then choose to do another, we treat them as if they screwed up the first time. Well, a lot of reasons we won't change our lives is because we think that we have to admit to ourselves and everybody watching we screwed up. If we change what school we go to, if we change who we're dating or who we marry, you know, we get out of a marriage, we change jobs. We think that means we have to admit to everyone watching we screwed up the first time. The fourth step is a step back. It's being willing to say there's nothing wrong with recognizing when you went down a wrong path, you can just back it up. And then the fifth step is that difficult step that you take when you know that you already took a misstep so that you, there's a possibility that you'll end up taking another one, but you do it anyway. Those are the five steps, you know, the first one, the second one, the wrong one, the step back, and then the step into the unknown, knowing you've already screwed up once. Those are the ones everybody makes. And, and somebody said to me once, like, what's your biggest regret? And it's one of those questions that we're so sure we know the answer to, we've never actually answered it. And I thought about it, and it was like, I got to stop saying like, I've had it too much with teenagers. <laughs> Don't worry, I, we I, can I, edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought about it, and it's, it came down to this, we can't screw up. Uh, you know, Jessica Holmes, a successful comedian, said that a funny thing happens when you reach your goals, you become terrified of making a mistake. And I think that 
this idea that we equate change with failure, not failure with failure. And I'm not going to give some speech about how failure teaches you a million things. Everyone knows that. But what I found interesting is that we equate change with failure. This idea that if we decide to do something different, that what we're actually admitting is that we failed the first time. And I think as long as we equate change with failure, we're never going to make it a big part of our life. If that makes any sense? No, it does. And so it becomes like this thing where we lock into everything. And the reason that we don't decide to go for it is because inherently starting something new means that you screwed up something before. Very rarely do we look at periods in our life as being completed. We look at periods in our lives as being missteps. That relationship wasn't over. That relationship was a mistake. And I wonder if many of the mistakes that we make aren't really mistakes at all. They're just things running their course. To go back to the point that I realize now is that somebody asked me, you know, what is your biggest regret? And I thought about it. And I kept coming up with all these things that I really regretted. And then I realized, though, that now that I'm thinking of them for the first time in a while, I'm actually really glad they happened because they led to X or Y. You know, right before I left the University of Toronto, I, I wanted a job somewhere else, and I really wanted it, and I didn't get it, and I was really upset, and it was a really big regret, but if I'd gotten it, I wouldn't have done this, right. and I realized if I listed all the things I regret, and I encourage you guys to do it, and all your listeners to do it too, start listing all the big regrets, like the moments that when they happened, you were really upset, list them all, and then look at how many of them you're still sorry happened, like not that you, you wish that you hadn't been hurt or, or disappointed, but right now, you're still sorry they happened. For me, I did it. 80% of the stuff I regretted in my life, I was now glad happened because it led to a new person or a new experience or a new opportunity. And if we look at it like that, isn't it crazy? Like if 80% of the things I've ever regretted in my life, now I don't regret. Every time something new happens that sucks, I can just tell myself, well, it's one of the 80%. Like if, it, if 8 out of 10 are usually something you eventually are happy about, well, why isn't that enough of a, like a sample size to be like, well, there's an 80% chance everything that doesn't turn out for me now will end up to be something good. That changes everything, right? Yeah, and, and it's funny because I've actually gone back and forth on this. You hear that a lot, you know, uh, you can learn from your mistakes and things you regret. But then sometimes I wonder, what if it's just the fact that we're resilient as humans and regardless, we're going to be okay. Because sometimes I go, man, I'm really glad I, I didn't take that job because now I'm at this job, which I like for once. And then I'll go, but what if I took it? And on my way to work, I bought a lottery ticket and I hit the lottery. And now I was, you know, like, so I don't know if I look at it as just, we will get past these things. Or if I just go, well, we're resilient. And so regardless of what happens, as long as you approach it with the right the right attitude, you'll be okay. Yeah, it, it, that's a big one, eh? Like, people love to say stuff happens for a reason. And I, I, I don't know, I've never gotten next to that in that it seems to me that when we say, because I think you're right, we are resilient. Absolutely everything that doesn't, every, the things that bring us closest to breaking, I think are the things that will keep us from breaking in the end. And this idea that everything happens for a reason, it seems to take, like, our own, like, credit away from us. And I'm not saying that, you know, if there is a higher power or whatever, they don't deserve some credit. But everything happens for a reason, says that there's a big plan, and it doesn't pay enough respect to our resiliency. Just like you said, I love that word, because I don't think everything happens for a reason. But I think that if you're patient and you're resilient enough, everything that happens to you can turn out to have a positive. 
Now, if we say it all happens for a reason, well, then we're not giving credit to the fact that we were patient and we were resilient because it was all planned anyway, right? Right. I think that's the key is that we are, in fact, resilient. And I think it's really important that people give themselves credit for this. Absolutely every problem you've ever faced, you've dealt with. Like, think of it, because you're still here, right? We're talking right now. No, it's a good so Every problem you've ever faced, you've dealt with. You might not be happy with how you dealt with it, but you did deal with it. We have beaten every problem that has ever come our way. And why don't we give ourselves credit for that? And seeing as how we've dealt with 100% of our problems, why on earth do we not say, well, you know what? I'm going to deal with whatever the heck comes next, because I have a 1,000% batting average, <laughs> right? But if we're not happy with how we dealt with them, we're not happy with the fact that we got hurt in dealing with them. We somehow act as if somehow we failed in dealing with them. No, like everything that we've ever been faced with, we've beaten. We've moved through. I'm not saying we moved through and we're the same person. I'm not saying we're moved through and a little piece of us didn't get left behind. But man, we made it through everything we've ever faced. So why don't we give ourselves credit for that? That's awesome, and that's definitely a good, positive thing to uh, to leave our listeners with here. And Drew, I know... You know, I asked for 30 minutes of your time, and we've definitely gone over. We really appreciate oh, wow. that and uh, had a great, great talk with you. Are there any websites, or do you want to plug your Twitter? Um, I mean, now's a chance just to get the word out where everybody can find you anywhere on the web. Oh, that'd be amazing. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm getting a little crazy about Twitter. I'm at, at NuanceDrew. That's N-U-A-N-C-E-D-R-E-W. And the website, uh, my website is www.nuanceleadership.ca. And uh, there's all kinds of information there. And you can link from the website to uh, all of my various TED Talks. There's one on, uh, that obviously has been on the TED.com, uh, Redefining Leadership or Leading with Lollipops. And there's, there's one that, honestly, I love even more than that. And uh, it's called uh, The List, TEDxUWO. And there's another one that's something I care a great deal about now um, at TEDxQueensU. And it's hiding out in some obscure corner of the internet with less than a thousand views. And uh, that was probably the toughest talk I ever gave because I was talking about how all of this, um, the role that bipolar disorder, because I'm bipolar and didn't know it until just a, a few years ago, the role that all of this played in, in being a part of my life for, for good and for bad. And uh, so, yeah, if anyone wants to share those, um, those are sort of the things I'm proudest of, the, the opportunity to have gotten on stage and, and take 60 minutes and cram it down. Because as you guys can probably guess, unless you put a hard cap on, I don't shut up. <laughs> no, uh, that's never a bad thing. <laughs> but you know. yeah, nuanceleadership.ca, at nuancedrew on Twitter. And uh, you know what? I, I try to answer every tweet um, and every Facebook message, you know, facebook.com slash Drew Dudley. Um, that I possibly can. It might take a little while, but I'm so grateful that people share this idea that, you know, something I said matters. And what I really want to share with people is that what like, you have something to say that matters too. And the thing that keeps us from saying the things we believe in is this belief that somehow we don't have the right to say it. And the leadership is recognizing that, man, you do matter. So do it. And let's stop playing by rules that say that so many of us aren't valuable. And the only reason we can do it is because all of us are like, well, I'm not enough. Well, you know, Let's seven billion personal revolutions. Um, <laughs> it, it, who knows what'll change in the world, right? Welcome back 
Hope you guys became a little smarter, changed your views in one way or another. Enjoyed that interview with Drew Dudley. He was a fun guy, loves to talk, talks very well, and we definitely enjoyed it. Yeah, you know, and again, touching on the topic of value, I I just kept thinking about how if I approached every day like that with the ideas and the things that I want to do or that go through my mind, rather than just can we get through this or can I just do this with the easiest process? It would be beneficial for everyone. So I'm going to try and do that and be a leader through that or just creating value in anyone's lives in the world. That's what I'm taking away from it. I know you like the list. Yeah. And how much did not settling resonate with you where he talked about not settling in a relationship, not settling in a job? It definitely resonates. I just think that it's always resonated. I mean, I've really tried to do that. That's that's something that you hear early on, I feel like, if, if you're lucky enough. and uh, But it's definitely something to live by. Some of these things are cliche, but they're cliche for a reason. Because right. they're, they're true and they're tough. I mean, they're tough to do. So the more you hear it and the more eloquently it's brought to you, it only helps, right? Absolutely. The other thing is you will notice we actually went into a really long tangent at the end of our interview. We've divided it up into two parts. Um, But we will list the end 20 minutes or so that we had with Drew where we tackle a different subject. So it's about, you know, he's bipolar. And it's really interesting because I'm interested in that. I mean, these types of things make us human. They they shouldn't be seen as weaknesses. And how he describes it's it's made him who he is. It's made him successful. And it's a really introspective, amazing kind of yin to the yang of the, the conversation we just had. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was awesome. And be on the lookout for it. We're going to release it as a part two of the Drew Dudley interview, I guess. You want to do it like midweek or something? Yeah, that will work. Okay. I'm so, glad that we can have these business meetings in the middle of the uh, the podcast recording. No, it's good. It's good. It helps. Part part two, Drew Dudley. So, and then I want to leave you with one other thing. Head over to iTunes, type in the search bar, Smart People Podcast, subscribe to us and rate us. Five stars only really, but no, I mean, it's not that tough to do. Just please do that. It helps. These are the things we just ask. Uh, in return for this production that we have brought you. So again, hope you enjoyed. Yes, I hope you guys enjoyed the interview. Stick around. We got some other great guests coming up. We do actually have some guests planned for once. We have like weeks and weeks in advance. I'm pretty pumped about it. Good job, New Year's resolutions. Boom. All right, guys. See you later.